For the uh, faculty, this is gonna be round two. I shared this at the academic council meeting and was asked uh, to share it at chapel. So hopefully it'll be a good reinforcement. Uh, this is actually, this devotional is actually a prequel to uh, Dr. Power's uh, profound presentation a month ago in chapel. So I've titled it Sin and Atonement Part Two, Affirmations from the Old Testament. Uh, I grew up in a different denominational network. My father was a pastor, relatively conservative in doctrine and practice, but he experienced the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in a way that surprised him and expanded his understanding. He began to preach and to teach about how the Holy Spirit provided believers with the power to be more fully living out their faith in following Christ. When I attended an undergraduate Bible college, one of my professors challenged students with that somewhat radical argument that God was serious about calling people to righteous living. He provoked us with a rhetorical question. Why would God ask people to do that which God knows fully well they are completely incapable of doing? The professor pressed us to consider that perhaps we are capable of that to which God has so consistently entreated his people. These two thoughts, the power of the Holy Spirit and God's earnest call to righteousness, hounded me in a religious environment which insisted that we will always sin and we must sin because of the fatal inheritance which has enslaved us. Our salvation from this hopeless state was Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, which appeased God's wrath and satisfied God's justice by having Christ penalized instead of us. Once again, my professor in Bible college challenged my thinking with the assertion that if that doctrine were true, then John 3.16 should actually read, for God was so angry at the world that he sent his only begotten son. Now, I did not have the language to fully express the new ideas which began to form as a result of the influence of my father and that influential professor. But in the miraculous providence of God, the language was presented to me and to my wife as we were introduced to the Church of the Nazarene. The doctrine of holiness gave me words for what had hounded me for years. The Lord brought affirmation for my new understanding through Nazarene colleagues, many of them around this Zoom conference. Especially, I think of my friend, Dr. Dan Powers, and his work on salvation through participation. I need only remind you of his profound exposition of participation in the divine nature, which he shared in chapel just a month ago on November 3rd. God's wondrous call to holiness is not new with the New Testament. It finds great precedent in the Elder Testament. Though there is plenty of testimony of human corruption in the Old Testament, there is little compromise to God's call to right living and holiness. The dismal record of human sin does not seem to hinder at all God's unrelenting exhortation that his creatures be holy, 
because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19. I'm convinced that God's call to holiness is not consistent with the assertion that we must inevitably sin only to be saved by the penal substitutionary death of Christ, which averts God's wrath. One of the supports for a penal substitutionary understanding of the cross is the argument that the Old Testament sin offering, which Christ fulfills, was intended to be a substitute for the offerer. In contrast to that idea, there's no indication that a sin offering was intended to suffer or to serve as a substitute on behalf of the offerer. In fact, there's significant evidence asserting that the animal sacrifices for ancient Israel were to be carried out in the most humane manner, thereby minimizing suffering on the part of the animal. Now, to understand the representative and participatory intention of the sin offering, we look to the prophets and to God's statement regarding the significance of blood in relation to atonement. The prophets were not critiquing the sacrificial system itself. Rather, they condemned the hypocrisy of Israelites who participated in sacrifices without concern for what they represented. So hear the word of the prophets, first from Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. And we ask, why? Because, says the Lord, your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. <coughs> and from the prophet Amos, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And finally from Micah, with what shall I come to the Lord? and bow myself before the God on high. Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? 
Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, the prophets make clear that the intended function of the sacrificial system was to represent the offering of one's own life to God through daily living in ways which honor God. Goodness, justice, caring for the disadvantaged, justice, righteousness, justice, kindness, walking humbly with God. The prophets were not condemning the sacrificial system, which God himself prescribed for Israel. Rather, they were crying out for Israel to live up to what those sacrifices represented. Now, in the midst of chastising Israel for sacrificing to goat demons in Leviticus 17, the Lord repeats the command that no one should eat any blood. And then in verse 11 of Leviticus 17, God proclaims one of the reasons for this prohibition is because blood has been set aside as a symbol for atonement. So Leviticus 17, 11 reads, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls because it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So it is the blood as life which atones, not as death does the blood atone, but as life. This statement appears in the first chapter following the detailed instructions regarding sacrifices and impurity, which are spelled out in Leviticus 1 to 15, and which culminate with the directions regarding the great day of atonement in Leviticus 16. And this statement in Leviticus 17, verse 11, provides a foundational insight into the significance of offering the blood of a sin offering before the presence of God on the altar in the holy place before the Ark of the Covenant. The blood of the animal represents not a substitution for the offer, but represents the very life of the offerer, him or herself. Placing the blood by the hands of the priest before the presence of God serves as the commitment of the offerer to give their own life to God by daily living with goodness, justice, righteousness, kindness, and a humble walk with God as the prophets describe. It's the very opposite of letting the animal die in my place so I'm off the hook for any sin I wish to commit or feel I must commit. In contrast, the animal represents me giving my life to God daily in obedience and love. God's call, God's people, are called to place themselves on the altar. Just as Christ told his followers, pick up your cross and follow me. It can't be said any clearer than Paul's exhortation in Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, 
present your own bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Yes, yes, we are called to die to self, but live for and in the power of Christ. It's not a matter of counting deeds, good or bad. It's a matter of living in relationship, walking humbly with God, God who came in Christ and provides all we need that we might live in participation with the divine nature. Thanks be to God.